If you're tired of the superficial and you're craving real conversation about life, relationships, fears, doubts, and the divine in the middle of it, this is the place for you. My name is Anna Dimmel, and I'm a blogger, writer, and former pastor. And it's my passion to build bridges, not walls, through honest, real conversation and connection. And I want that for you. This is the show that will help you do that and give you not only inspiration and connection, but will help you leave the superficial for good and form the real connections you're craving. Your story matters, and I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I have such a wonderful episode for you guys today. One of the most influential voices that has been inspiring and encouraging me and helping me put together the pieces of this deconstruction journey for myself has been this wicked smart brainiac Harvard grad named Pete Enns. If you're not familiar with his work, he has a podcast called The Bible for Normal People. And I think I discovered it, I don't know, maybe a year ago. That sounds about right. And you know, I like to describe what this spiritual journey has been like for me over the last few years as like I've had this puzzle, right? And I've been putting together the pieces of the puzzle, unraveling and then re-raveling my relationship with the Bible and my relationship with the divine. And what I love about Pete Enns' work is he offers the missing pieces of the puzzle. That's the gift that he has been to me, and his work has been to so many other thought leaders inside the Christian space that you probably follow and you're aware of. A lot of us are listening to him. So I am super honored to have him on the show today, and we just dive into so much. We dive into How are we actually supposed to read this book? How am I supposed to read the Old Testament? How am I supposed to read the New Testament? And what do we do with the arguments that we receive with the people that we love who tell us to take the Bible literally or who just black and white want to say it is what it is because the Bible says so? A lot of you are encountering these hard conversations with people you love and people you respect and people inside your faith communities. Pete offers such timely advice on how to interact with those moments and how to handle those hard, hard encountering moments when you either want to pull your hair out or you want to cry or you just want to be like, I'm done. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. He offers a lot of hope and a lot of wisdom. I know you will be inspired by this episode, and I know that afterwards you'll probably be a huge fan of Pete Ends too. So, and I, oh, and I have to give this caveat. My my lovely Facebook group knows this. I was like fangirling. I was super nervous to interview him because I, like I said, he has played such a significant role in my journey. So I took a deep breath, and y'all just y'all just know I was sweating because I was so nervous. But I got over my nerves, and before you knew it, I just felt like I had a new friend. So loved this conversation. I know you guys will too. I have to shout out to the Facebook group. Thank you guys for being not only a safe place for each other, which I have seen so much of that happening, but also being such a camaraderie group for me. Part of this journey, and we talk about this in the episode a little bit, has been lonely. When you step outside of the box, 
that you're used to and the box that everyone else is used to you being in, it can feel lonely. And one of the things that has meant so much to me through this work of the podcast and through this online community that we're building is that sense of community, which a lot of you guys have felt like you've lost. And I have felt that I've lost mine too. So I just want to say thank you to you beautiful people inside the Facebook group that I call my friends and who I am so thankful that I get to interact with every day. If you're not in the Facebook group, you have an open invitation. There is always room for more and you will find nothing but lovely, warm, accepting, embracing, wonderful people inside that group. You can opt in on my website, just a jesusfollower.com backslash podcast backslash podcast group. We would love to see you in there. And as always, thank you to you guys for the wonderful reviews and feedback on my iTunes page for the podcast. I cannot tell you how much those mean to me. Thank you. I think that's enough of an intro. So now, without any further ado, I can't wait to introduce you to the infamous Pete Ends. Here we go. Welcome back to the Behind the Mirror podcast. Today we have with us Pete Enns. Pete is a professor of biblical studies at Eastern University. He has his PhD from Harvard. He's the author of numerous works, a contributor to various publications, and he's invited to speak and lecture all over the U.S. And he's also one of the hosts of the podcast, The Bible for Normal People. Pete Enns, what an intro. (laughs) That's right. Just like I wrote it. Perfectly. Hi, Anna. Hello, hello. Oh my gosh, I told you earlier, I just, I feel giddy because I've been such a fan of your work. You have just been Listen, a- just press pause, go get some wine, come on back. It'll be okay. <laughs> oh, you have created such a safe place for so many thinkers to think outside the box and you're offering language to so many of the things that rattle inside the brains of those of us who are beginning to look at our faith differently. And so I wanted to just dive into this whole Bible topic because I hear this from my listeners often. They ask me so many questions about, well, how do we look at the Bible now? Because we're reading things so differently. So I wanted to get your viewpoint on what have you found is the default view of the Bible with most Christian Americans? Yeah, I, I think, I, can, I mean, I can answer that, but someone's going to say, well, I think I'm average and I don't look at it that way. But I, you know, on one level, I think the default way is to think of it as God has an idea. He somehow communicates that to people, and those people, like a prophet, for example, says it, and then that prophet or someone right after that prophet writes it down. So it's like a top-down communication, and yeah, that's. I mean, that that's that's a interesting way of thinking about it. And um, I'm not necessarily against Mm. that way of thinking about it, but it also creates certain problems when you start reading 
the Bible itself, you know, that's sort of usually a cure for any sort of theories we have about how the Bible works. Just reading it is sometimes a cure for that. Well, and most modern evangelicals take these stances, which I know you hear often, as do I, of claiming the Bible to be inerrant and claiming to take it literally. And I've heard you speak often about both of these ideas, and I wondered if you could share a bit of your thoughts on those two common stances. Sure, yeah. I mean, just with the Bible being inerrant, you know, that means different things to different people. You know, some some people, inerrant Bible means everything has to be taken literally. And most inerrantists that I know, they, they don't believe that. They don't think the Bible has to be taken literally at every point. They leave room for things like metaphors and symbols and even exaggerations and like culturally conditioned ways of talking. You know, like in one of the Psalms, I forget which, I think it's 82, I forget. No, it's not 82. It's one of the 80s. But we're, no, it's, no, scratch that. I have no idea what Psalm this is. But anyway, <laughs> where Yahweh is riding on a chariot, for example, you know, like the Canaanite storm god Baal does. And, you know, I mean, an erratist that I know would not take that literally. They'd say that's an expression, it's cultural, blah, blah, blah. But for me, I think the language of inerrancy, the reason I reject it as a category is that for me, it simply doesn't explain what I'm reading. It Mm. usually makes me get into defensive mode. Like I have to defend the Bible to maintain this way of thinking rather than this sort of coming up organically from the Bible itself. And so, you know, when sometimes people say, well, that means you're an errantist rather than an inerrantist. And I say, well, no, I just reject the category, even a starting point. I think we have to go elsewhere to think about what the Bible is and, and why it looks the way that it does. Well, and I think you hit the nail on the head when you said the defense portion of the reaction that people feel when they take that stance of the Bible being an errand. It, it, it tends to take this militant type stance after you've adapted that mind frame yeah, around it. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And, 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 you know, why is that the case? That's a good question. But I think partly it's because, you know, this is part of the bloodstream of American evangelicalism and fundamentalism going back 100, 200 years, where there were real threats to the Bible, at least they were perceived to be threats, like, you know, science or evolution or archaeology or things like that. And, you know, when you hold to a way of thinking of the Bible that needs it to be sort of inerrant, and then you feel attacked on all sides. In a defensive posture, you would expect that to happen. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean you win those arguments necessarily, but it's it's understandable why people would get defensive. But, you know, why, I don't know, it, it's, it takes a lot of energy, in my opinion, to defend this notion of inerrancy in the Bible, which is why... You know, I think if the Bible is an errand, it does a wonderful job of covering it up. Yeah, and, I would agree with that. And I'm not really sure if if our energies are meant to be spent holding to a theory, which is what inerrancy is. It's a theory. It's not obvious. It's not in the Bible. It's nothing like that. But it's a theory, and you know, it takes a lot of energy. And I sometimes just wonder whether that's where our energy should be spent when it comes to reading the Bible. Right. Well, you start taking away from the experience portion of it, which for many of us, that's where we started. 
you know, that's the beauty for most of us in our faith. It started with an experience. And I think you lose sight of that when you start grasping onto this defensive militant posture. Um, you you kind of lose the mystery and the wonder yeah. of it. Well, I think that yeah, that's, I think that's very well put because the experience is how people come to faith. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's not from, my goodness, what an inerrant Bible I'm reading here. This must be true. That that sort of stuff comes in later. That comes in after the experience. And I think you're right. It What it does is it, okay, we started with experience, but now the faith has to rest on something else. In essence, an argument, um, right. a logical strand of something. And again, I, I think this is it's so unhelpful to sort of go down that line because it's just so difficult to see that in the Bible itself. And I know that some might bristle at hearing me say that, and I don't mean to to sound dismissive of other people who might think differently, but, you know, I just, it's hard to read even the first couple of chapters of the Bible and think, well, this is just perfectly written, accurate history or something. You know, it's, it's it's something else seems to be going on again and again and again that the word inerrancy simply doesn't capture. So it seems to be almost a category mistake. Like it's, mm. we're imposing something onto this ancient, diverse, even ambiguous text we call the Bible that it's simply not prepared to bear. It, it can't handle that category. And you know, but why do people hold on to it? Well, that's I think that's largely cultural. It's part of the American Christian experience, so to speak, of having this Bible that is the source of your knowledge of God and the source right. of your faith. And you cannot trust experience. You have to evaluate experience based on what the Word of God says. And I get the logic of it, but it's only a logic that works until, again, forgive me, you examine it and live with it for a while. And then you see, my goodness gracious, I just, this doesn't make sense of my reality. It doesn't make sense of just what I'm seeing in these words in front of me. So why hold to it? Well, and often it doesn't make sense with our experience either, Mm -hmm. which is what brought me to my, if you can call it a crisis of faith, where my experience wasn't matching the things I was told to look at as literal and told to look at as inerrant in scripture. The two were, were conflicting with one another. And I, you know, I was it science or what was it? What what was it? Well, for me, I don't know that it was necessarily the science part. It was the the harshness. You know, mm. you look at things like, and and I know you've talked on your podcast about violence within the text, and you look at stories that seem so violent at the hands of this God that I was brought up to to believe is perfectly good and safe. And the two just don't marry each other at all. And when I'm in my quiet space connecting with my divine creator, I never tap into anything that feels violent or harsh or exclusive. So marrying those two ideas was very difficult for me. And of course, like you said, the scientific part of actual history versus what we read is supposed history in the Bible. It, it's hard to match those two the older you get and you the more you study. Yeah. Um. I just can't believe how sin is in your heart, Anna, that you can't accept the Bible just the way it is. I know. I need to repent, don't I? (laughs) (laughs) There must be some sin in your life. But you know, the thing is, I mean, the violence thing, I should have said that before science, because with 
most people I talk to, and especially students, my college students, that's like the first thing that comes mm. up. It's like, I'm a little embarrassed about some uh-huh. of this stuff, you know, and why it's so completely violent. And, and you know, the, the, the idea that, well, God's sovereign, God can do what God wants to do. Okay, but that doesn't take the for us the, the, the struggle away, the problem away. And, you know, what a lot of Christians, I think, don't fully appreciate is that absolutely yes there's violence in the bible there's some violence in the new testament as well Mm -hmm. by the way but the church has always sort of struggled with this you know er early church fathers uh, you know allegory didn't come out of nowhere right and if there are things in the bible that are just ridiculous morally objectionable you have people like origin in the, you know the third century, saying, um, "Yeah, this is telling us this has to be understood not literally but metaphorically or symbolically," and which is one way of thinking about it. You know, there are other ways of, of of addressing it too. But the point is that it's always been. It's not like everybody just gleefully accepted the stuff and then moved on. It's people have been thinking about this for and Jews too for a very very long time. What kind of a God is this? How do we understand this text? And what is God like now here to us? Do is this the God we connect with? Like you said, is this the God we commune with? And you know, the history of theology is pretty diverse on that stuff. Dig into that a little bit. Talk to us a little bit about the Jewish tradition of wrestling with the text. Yeah, this is something that I learned from experience with my graduate school professors who were Jewish and and watching dialogues and how debate is just a normal part of reading the Bible and disagreeing strongly, but it's about the conversation. It's not about solving the issues and coming away with the one right answer so you can move on to the next verse. <laughs> it's it's respecting the fact that there is mystery in God. There is, and and the text itself is not supposed to be easy to understand. And it leaves, because there are ambiguities in the Bible, there are tremendous ambiguities in the Bible that leave open various legitimate interpretations of texts. You know, I mean, sort of just a very quick example is, you know, take almost any law you find in the Old Testament, like, you know, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well, what does that mean? What means don't work? Okay, what's work? Well, we've just entered the history of, right. of you know early right. Jewish thought, like like debating that point, and it's mm. not like they're it's not legalistic mumbo jumbo for them. It's like the command said, "Don't work." Okay, we would love to know what work is, but that isn't really outlined in the text. And so you have in the Mishnah, which is a, a Jewish uh, compendium of of oral traditions surrounding the law that was compiled like around the year two hundred uh, A.D. Uh, I think there are 30, a list of 31 things that are considered work that you don't do on the Sabbath. And it's like, okay, you know, I guess you work that out. And I've seen Christians struggle with this. Uh, you know, I, I remember once, oh gosh, um, I was a long time ago, I was sort of on a committee in, in a church body that I was a part of. And uh, you would have young people come through to be ordained as a, a pastor and they'd have to sort of pass a theology exam. And uh, one person asked this young guy, uh, you know, how do you feel about the Sabbath? Oh, I believe in keeping the Sabbath. Well, how do you feel about going to a football game on Sunday? <laughs> and he thought about it. Now, listen to this. He thought about it and he said, 
Was it a one o'clock game or a four o'clock game? He did not. Yes, that's exactly what he said. And <laughs> and we said, well, what difference does that make? And he goes, well, if it's a one o'clock game, you know, you have to rush out of church to get there. But if it's a four o'clock game, you can get there without any trouble. And I'm thinking, what a wonderfully Jewish conversation that was. Right. That's exactly what it was. They just don't know it, you know. Um, but, you know, it, it's the flexibility of the law and the ambiguity of the law that I think is actually a beautiful thing. And it's baked into the pages of Torah or Pentateuch. Anyway, you know, there's, there is mm -hmm. tremendous diversity and ambiguity in the laws. And I think the the scribes, the wise scribes that compiled these texts and, and, and put this Pentateuch together in the form that we know it, which happened after the Babylonian exile, they knew this. They knew that diversity was there. They weren't trying to cover it up. They were trying to respect it. And I think Judaism has a better handle on that than Christianity traditionally has had. And one of my professors, John Levinson, and I always, this is a pseudo quote, the way I remember it, but this is definitely the gist of it. Uh, he said, for Jews, the Bible is a problem to be solved. For Christians, it's a message to be proclaimed. And if it's a problem uh. to be solved, you can gather around a table and debate and leave arm in arm. But if it's a message, you have to agree. There can be no ambiguity. And, and what frustrates you know, my evangelical and fundamentalist brothers and sisters more than saying, this is an ambiguous and unclear text. And and we have to figure it out. And and we may arrive at very different opinions on this. No, 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 it's clear. It, it's clear that I mean, God's in God would never deceive us. Well, he's not deceiving anybody. <laughs> but the text is ambiguous. It, it simply is. So, you know, can we start with that instead of starting with this, this, almost philosophical starting point in an errant text because God is logical and God is pure mind and blah, blah, blah. How about saying, this is an ambiguous, ancient, and diverse text. That's my starting point. Mm. Why? Because that's what I'm reading. And there's no sin in my heart. Well, there is, but that's not keeping me from seeing you know, what's there. It's right. just there. Well, and, and the Bible, I think it invites us into that. And, you know, I've heard people say, I even heard someone say this recently is, well, it's just, it's so clear. It's just so simple. I don't know why people don't understand how simple it is. And I'm looking at this person going, have you read it? <laughs> have you actually yeah. read it? <laughs> because it is far from simple. I mean, I suppose you could take one or two verses and make those your mantra and consider that simple. But when you read everything inside of the context, inside of the culture dynamics, inside of even just Old Testament stories that conflict right. one another, you know, it it is inviting you into an right. argument. I mean, and some people, you know, and I say this again with respect that I think you have to get to a point where you're ready to see it. And if you're mm. not, that's fine. Yeah, I'm not going to like hang you or anything like that. It's, you know, if I were king of Christianity, I would leave you alone. I wouldn't bother you. But, you know, it's, it's, it's something that I think people have to be ready to see. It can't be forced upon them. But when they do, I just, <laughs> forgive me, and just another little very brief anecdote here with a class that I was teaching a few years ago, uh, we were looking at the Pentateuch, and uh, we were reading Deuteronomy, and I always have the students read the fourth chapter, because it sort of introduces all the legal stuff that we get into, but in the fourth chapter, Moses is recounting the past about, we went here, and the, you know, the Amorites this, and, and Og, and Bashan, and all that stuff, you know, that, that and, and, you know, it's led us up to this point, and then he says, and God, you know, driving out the Canaanites from the land and, and as it is to this day. 
And that little phrase, as it is to this day, is a very curious <laughs> one. And 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 then my, the student who read it the last time, he raised his hand and he said, uh, "Professor Renz, how can Moses be talking about the conquest of something that's already happened?" And I said, "Good question. Let's talk mm. about that." You know, because if you just if you're an alert reader. And I have to hand it to the history of Judaism. Talk about alert, minute, detailed readers Ugh, of texts. Yeah. They knew all this stuff. I mean, not all of it, but they, they were well-versed in the fact that the Bible has tremendous tensions in it. And so they talk about it and they try to resolve them in some way, but not in an inerrantist kind of way. Yeah, there, there are different ways of looking at these things, but they notice them. And for, for Christians, we don't always notice them. And I, I remember James Kugel, another one of my Jewish professors at Harvard, he, we were talk, I didn't even know what we were talking about, but somebody said something, some Protestant in the class said something was on the Psalms. And he said, have you never read this before? <laughs> like, how can you not see this? It's right in front of your face. And it's worse in Hebrew. You know, it's more ambiguous. So, and I just, and that's why to me, see, this is the thing. Here's the problem. Okay. We present this, what we're talking, what you and I are talking about now, this is often presented as a problem and we have to find some way to solve it, to get back to a Bible. What if these things aren't problems? Mm. What if these things show us something of the character of the Bible? Like you said, invites us into something other than simply accessing information. Right. Right. A lot of people look at the Bible, and I was raised as one of these people, that it's like a Google search engine. You type in your question, <laughs> and you just expect the answer to pop up because God would, of course, offer that in the text. And it's, you right. really cannot look at it that way. No, all you have to do is keep turning the pages, you know, and Proverbs is notorious for that and, and some other places as well. But it's, it's almost as if, well, you know, what do I know what God does? But it's almost as if the book is set up to keep us from being an errantist, to keep us from being biblicists. In my mind's eye, you know, I can imagine this conversation a long time ago, long before Christianity, where some scribe said, oh, Lord, can we have this in writing? And he says, well, why? Well, we just want to make sure we get it right because a lot of time has passed and the days of David are long gone. We just want to get it right. And the Lord says, okay, fine. I will give you a Bible. But just so we don't get off on the wrong step and just so you don't get the wrong idea about this thing being some holy thing to be worshipped, I'm going to put in there two conflicting histories of Israel mm. called Samuel Kings and then First and Second Chronicles. Or I'm going to have all the laws simply not match and have them be in conflict with each other. There are going to be significant differences between Exodus or Leviticus or Deuteronomy. And, oh, here's the thing. I'll start with a creation story, and then right after that, another creation story that aren't compatible with each other. Mm -hmm. And then in chapter three, I'm going to have two magic trees and a talking snake and if that doesn't help people understand that this is symbolic and metaphorical and not literal and obvious, uh, we're going to have genealogies in chapter four and five that don't match. Oh, and uh, Cain and Abel are going to sacrifice, even though sacrifice is instituted until the time of Moses. 
And oh, wait a minute. Oh, and the flood story, we're still in Genesis here, right? The flood story is going to have tensions (laughs) within it. And then there are going to be two different versions of how the nations spread out across the world and how languages started. And it's uh, whether you read the end of the Noah story, the Tower of Babel story, we're not even into the patriarchs yet. And if you don't have by now the right, the idea (laughs) that this is not a text you're supposed to look at literally, I don't know what's going to convince you. So then how would you, how would you tell someone to view the Old Testament? Yeah, I would tell them to, well, I would say, here's how I view it. And I wouldn't tell them how to do anything because I think we all have to, I'm still discovering and I'm trying to be curious about all this stuff and, and, and look at it, you know, in fresh ways as well. But I would say that the Old Testament is a very long record Probably, you know, the writings that make up the Old Testament probably are about a thousand years. That's a long span of time. Hmm. And they are a record of of people's real experiences with God and how those experiences reflect the time and the setting that they're in. And that models for us our own journey of faith, which also has different times and different circumstances. And we it's comforting to see that reflected back in this ancient text. So it's not, again, I, I use this metaphor a lot, but it's not a rule book or it's not an owner's manual. It's more modeling for us this journey of faith, which can sometimes look like one psalm over here or another psalm over there. It can sometimes act like, you know, everything's going smoothly or everything's falling apart. You know, and I think this is why you have in the Bible, it's so important to really embrace books like Ecclesiastes or Job, and not just as curious oddities, but as very, very important books or Lamentations or the Lament Psalms, which are complaining against what you might call the dominant narrative of the Old Testament. Like, here's God. Obey him, things go well. Disobey him, things go poorly. And all these books are saying, yeah, no, (laughs) it's not, this is not working. And I think this is this beautiful debate and dialogue that we have that should not be squelched. It shouldn't be covered up. It shouldn't be papered over. It shouldn't be uh, made nice and made to behave. It should be allowed to sort of have sway because that's exactly our lives, you know, who doesn't have ups and downs? Mm. Who doesn't sometimes feel like Job and other times feel like, you know, a triumphant moment in the in the Bible, right? And and I think both of those are valid. And again, you know, the compilers of the Bible after the exile, after this terrible moment of crisis and, and the sense of being abandoned by God in the sixth century, when they compile the Bible, they could have made all sorts of decisions, about what to leave out. And they kept in this, this counter voice, this, this dialogue, this even inner debate of the Bible. And, you know, if, if we, if we lose that, I just think we lose so much of what makes the Mm. Bible actually worth reading. Mm. Gosh, I agree. And I can hear some of my listeners and probably this is my own upbringing coming out in me too, saying, Oh my gosh, we're starting to see those tensions in the Old Testament now, all these stories that we grew up with as believing they were 100% accurate, 100%, you know, no fault, no no tension anywhere inside of scripture, that it all married itself together perfectly and, and easily. Now I'm seeing it all kind of crumble. And there's a bit of panic that comes when you start seeing what you have built your belief on now starting to, to not fit 
so nicely as it used to. So what would you say to to people, because I know I have many listeners in this point in their journey that are feeling that that moment of panic, like, oh my gosh, there, wait, there's two creation stories? <laughs> like, What do I do with yeah. that? Well, no, and I get it. Yeah, I mean, it's panic is one way of putting it, just yeah. being afraid is another way of putting it. And that's, I think that is the common emotion. And I think that has to be respected too, because if we run away from that, we never work through that. And I think, I think people see when you don't face the fear and the panic, Mm. you just become angry. And I think rather than doing that, just say, I'm really afraid. Just, just say that to yourself or to somebody else and then start thinking about why are you afraid? You know, what will happen here if the Bible doesn't work the way that you might have thought it worked, what if there's something more here that's way out ahead of you? And maybe there's something to learn about this God and about this text. And that's always going to be scary when you're leaving the familiar ground. Yeah. You know, what if what you're really, um, you think you're losing faith or you think you're losing God, maybe really what you're doing is losing a version of that and it needs to grow. It needs to, move beyond that. That This could be, well, I think this is a very positive time, even though it doesn't look like it. And the hard part is that, you know, people like what you're describing and are probably, they've been raised this way. And this is the only faith that they know that the Bible, okay, bottom line, here's the foundation of our faith, the Bible, and this is how it Mm -hmm. works. And once you start cracking that if that gets cracked too much, then ipso facto, you have no faith left. Right. And I like to remind people the foundation of your faith is God and your humanity and Jesus. That's the foundation. And that there's a mystery to that. It's not a text that you control, but the text bears witness to this whole relationship of faith. And it, But see, that takes that's a huge step, it isn't is. it? You know, it's like you're asking people to... It's basically a, just a, a large-scale theological re-education. Mm, that's a and good way to that's put it. an awful, that's a hard thing to expect of people. And that's why, you know, people who have positions where they can actually converse with with people who are struggling with that, I mean, that's that's a big deal, I think, to do yeah. that. That's not easy. And and. But it's it's a responsibility too. A good friend of mine, we both stepped down from our pastorate positions, you know, within a few years of each other. And and I remember the way he framed this part of his journey is he said he got a picture in his mind of like, you know, those Jenga puzzles, you know, that go up and down. And he yes. said he was terrified that if he started taking out pieces of his faith, it was like taking out the pieces from the bottom of the Jenga puzzle, that the whole thing would just collapse. You know, if I take out say the creation story, if I take out Noah, if I take out, you know, that this is actually not literal, that he was terrified the whole thing would fall apart. And he's like, what he found was it didn't fall apart. You know, you can Mm -hmm. remove those pieces and it, his faith didn't collapse, but a lot of people fear that's that scenario that it's all just going to crash. Right. Or you know what I mean? I that's I that's a great analogy, and I can push it in another direction. Yeah, the whole thing will come to the ground and crumble. In fact, it'll be ground into dust. But out of that dust, something else will arise. Oh, I and love it's not that. going to be a Jenga tower. It's going to be a path. It's going to be something else. It's not going to be this fragile thing that you have to block everybody away from and sort of protect 
to make sure nobody messes with the system because once you take something away, it all falls apart. What if that's simply the wrong metaphor to begin with? Mm. Right? The, the problem is the Jenga tower. Right. It's not what happens to it. Gosh, that's good. See, this is why you're on this show. So smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh gosh, I've, I love I've, that. I've experienced a few things about that too myself. You know, I've, yeah, it is. It's not like you know, one day answers popped into my head or something. You know, I, it's it's not always been easy uh, for me. That's why you know I really do understand when people are afraid and when they don't want to move and I don't push them. Unless my students and they have to take a test or something, but you know, we, we talk about it though, and and I understand it. I get it. You know, it's it's this is this is not an easy thing when your whole spiritual narrative is really grounded in something that looks really great until you sort of just put a microscope or, or just a little magnify or just look closely, just put your glasses on and look closely, and it's like I have to keep defending this. I, I have to keep better and better and more clever arguments to make this idea hold firm. And again, that's where I start to question, maybe you need a new theory. Yeah. You know, maybe that's the problem. Again, maybe it's the fact that you're trying to keep a Jenga tower up and Mm. that's the problem. And maybe God in God's mercy grinds it into dust when you're ready, even though you don't feel like you're ready. You probably are. You just don't know it. And there's something else that can grow out of that. But even that growth isn't going to be pain-free. Right. You know? Well, nothing that's good ever is pain-free. Yeah, true. <laughs> You know, I think when you look at the milestones in your life, and I think most people- I don't have any, any, but go ahead. <laughs> of course not. No, no milestones. <laughs> but you know, anyone who's lived life whatsoever, you look at the milestones and they usually aren't the easy moments that you look back and say, yes, I grew there. And yes, mm-hmm. I, I really found a new um, a new side of myself. I discovered more of who I am and who I'm meant to be in my purpose. Those types of moments, we all have them. And usually they come through, like you said, the grinding down to dust moments. That's usually when we rise. Yeah. And it's never pain-free. <laughs> it just no. isn't. And I, you know, that's, I think people who have tried to follow Jesus for more than about an hour, they know that, you know, they, they yeah. know it's not the good times. Uh, the, we, we like those, but it's, it's the difficult times. It's uh, Samuel Rutherford, who was a Puritan said, grace grows best in winter. And mm. I think, that, and there's a lot of winter in our lives and it's either neutral or we're down. And, but there is the, these resurrection moments, these exaltation moments that we experience too. But, you know, I think of mother Teresa who, you know, confessed that she was in the dark night of the soul for something like 47 years and it only lifted, yeah. you know, a fairly short time before her death. Right. And, you know, I can't help but think that some of the stuff that she did during that time was connected to this desire to find God anyway and to move forward. And, you know, there's something about the redemptive nature. I don't say this lightly, but the redemptive nature of suffering that I'm not sure if she would have done some of the stuff that she did had she been happy clappy. Agreed. I've had the same thought about her. And it's interesting, you look at people like her and you never would have thought that she would have dealt with the darkness that she did um, because her life was just such a beautiful 
picture of love and grace and and what I would have considered true joy. But yeah, she dealt with the suffering and she a lot of good came out yeah. of it. A lot of good came out yeah. of it. So you mentioned the the Jesus portion of this journey and I and I want to ask you that question. So we talked about, you know, what do you do with the Old Testament? What do we do with the New Testament? How should we view the New Testament? Well, in a way similarly, but also in a way a little bit differently. And I think one of the things to remember is the Old Testament is so diverse because it covers such a span of time, and the New Testament was written in a relatively short period of time. You know, the earliest texts are probably from, let's say, maybe the mid-40s, and and this is a lot of debate on this, but the, 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 the last texts are probably, you know, within 100 years, you know, like maybe, you know, early second century, roughly. And, you know, I think the, the contexts are different. You know, it's 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 not a struggling nation trying to find itself. It's it's a people who have been worn out by exile, who are waiting for some resolution to their plight, and sort of in a flash, this Jesus shows up, and he's hard to understand, and the Gospels can't quite agree exactly on how to present him, and the New Testament writers, same thing. They they. You know they they're aiming in different ways and saying different things. So I think there's diversity there, like there is in the Old Testament. But because of the, because of the time limitations, I think, and because it's focused on a person, right, more than uh, a history of monarchs or things like that, I think mm. the subject matter is just more restrained. But you still have in the New Testament, mm. you definitely have some of the same challenges you find in the old, like questions of like what really happened, you know, that's absolutely an issue in the new Testament and with Jesus or the book of acts or anything. And, you know, so you still, you're still dealing with ancient literature. It's not ancient, like iron age literature, but it's, it's first century Jewish Greco Roman literature still. And you still have some of those challenges there. It's not like everything gets cleared up in the New Testament. That's the thing I want to sort of, um, you know, disabuse people of. It's like, oh, well, here it's all clear. Everything, all that weird stuff in the Old Testament gets sort of settled. And it doesn't because, you know, the violence of Jesus is really not in favor of violence, you know, in in, in the Sermon on the Mount. But you know, Paul is in First Thessalonians, and I don't know why our New Testament ends yeah. with the book of Revelation, quite frankly, because it's, you know, it's it's – it's, it a, it's an interesting well, ending. It's almost like, and again, this is not the <laughs> kind of thing that I, I expect everyone to agree with, but it's almost like a wrong ending. You know, I, I, I mean, I can see the point of the book in the sense of, you know, there, there are problems with the Roman Empire, and this, this book seems to reflect those struggles. So it made a lot of sense at that time. But, you know, blood, you know, for 200 miles down the road, as high as a horse's bridle, that's, you know, God's vengeance on the enemies of God's people. I, then you read other stuff in the New Testament. It doesn't seem to be compatible. And even when you remember that the book of mm-hmm. Revelation is absolutely not literal, it's not a history. It's it's a different thing. It's, it is an imaginary symbolic book. But even with that, you know, you, you have that. And, and to me, it's just a reminder that, 
the New Testament itself, people be sitting down as I say this, okay, or drink something heavily, but you know, the New Testament does not settle everything. We, we are never, uh, yeah. uh, uh, you know, we, we can't relinquish our responsibility to keep thinking theologically, which is exactly what the church did afterwards. You know, they, they kept thinking theologically about, you know, who is this God? And so they, you know, they come up with Trinity, which is really not a New Testament concept, despite what some people think. It's, it's, it might be, you know, hinted at in places, but I don't think Paul would have known what, to, or frankly, Jesus would have known what to do with something like that. But that's a development in theology. And I think that's, that's what the church has always done. Not, you know, the, the New Testament, I see it as more, I see the Old Testament itself on certain trajectories, and there's tons of movement. It's not a stale book that's all on one level. It does different things, and it's on the move. I think I sort of like imagine a, an arc going up slightly, and then the gospel is like that arc jumping up tenfold high. And the connection between mm. where that arc jumped and where it came from is not always obvious and clear. But it's still, you know, the New Testament claims to be connected to Israel's story, and yet it handles Israel's story very creatively and in ways you don't expect it to. And to me, that that's a very important thing to remember in, in all this, because that is, there's so much creativity in the New Testament itself to tell this story. And I think for us, that's an impetus ourselves to, to embrace that and to say, how do we look at the story today? How do we look at the story of God today? And the Old Testament land was huge. Right. Wall was huge. Temple was huge. Sacrifice was huge. And the New Testament land, meh, it's not that important. You know, they're not trying to grab land. Law is, you know, it depends on where you read, but Paul is, you know, you can understand why Jewish followers of Jesus might have had trouble with Paul and some of the things he says about the law. Or the temple, which represents God's, location with his people. This is like the holy place and you have the holy of holies inside of it. Jesus says, I'm the temple. And then Paul says, the church is the temple. That's where the spirit of God resides. These are major shifts and changes that that transpose, so to speak, the Old Testament into a different key. You know, So I think to, to me, primarily when I think of the new, that's how mm. I explain it. It's actually taking something of the essence of the story, but then going in a direction that, frankly, no one would possibly have expected. Well, and, you know, it's interesting, you hit on Paul there and what he, what he was tackling in the way he was now presenting different ideas and different ways of looking at tradition and different ways of looking at text, honestly, that they had been used to seeing only one way. It's the same argument that we're having now. And I, and I use argument, maybe that's not the right word. It's the same tension we feel now inside of mainstream Christianity of you have this movement of thinkers who are now thinking outside the box or at least being vocal about it and challenging mm. people to now look at text differently and to now rethink and reimagine maybe this means something we didn't know it meant. You know, let's look at it from this angle. Let's look at it from this angle. And talk a little bit about how some of the people in the New Testament were doing that, how the Bible models this idea of reinterpreting older interpretations. Yeah, and I, I think you use the word reimagining, and I think it's actually a very good way of putting it, that, that I think they are reimagining not just text, but what God is like. 
You know, Paul, mm-hmm. when Paul says that Gentiles don't have to be circumcised to be full children of Abraham, in, in a way that's compatible with Judaism, because, you know, for Gentiles to be sort of God-fearers and, and, and followers of Yahweh in some sense, they didn't have to be circumcised, but to convert, you did. Mm. And you had to maintain dietary restrictions. And so Paul got a lot of resistance from people who were basically just who knew their Bible. Right. And I, I think Paul's argument in essence boils down to this. What God is new what God is about cannot be bound by these b- words on the page. And mm. so that is a reimagining of God which results in a reinterpretation of text. Paul does not start with the text. He starts with the experience and he starts with what God is doing. And then the text comes along for the ride. I've just described the entire history of Christian and Jewish interpretation. It's not the text. Seriously, I'm I'm not kidding either. It's like, it's, it's, we, we, the text is used to support things that we are convicted about. You know, I don't, I don't think you can find climate change or not climate change. I don't think you can find earth care really in the Bible. People try to find Genesis one, you know, be, um, you know, we're sort of God's rulers on earth when he creates humanity and stuff like that. But it's, it's really not there, but that doesn't mean God doesn't actually care about right. it. Right. <laughs> you know, th- that's we, we're reimagining God all the time. And again, the history of Christianity has been one act of reimagining God after another based on where they are and when they are and what sort of needs come up in the community. And what does it mean to follow God here and now? I see the New Testament is already doing that for us. The gospel writers do it. The New Testament writer, uh, letter writers do it as well. And so to those who who cling to this idea of, well, it stopped with the New Testament. It stopped with that first church. We can't rethink anymore. It was done. It was finished. What do you say to that mindset? Because again, a lot of people listening, this is the mindset that they, that they've always known. And it's, and it can be challenging to bridge that gap. Well, I think one, one thing that I would want to talk about with someone who, who, was you know clinging to that idea is that within the New Testament itself there isn't just one way of reimagining God there are conflicting ways, or at least diverse ways. Maybe not conflicting, but at least diverse ways of thinking about what God is like. I mean, even the issue of violence, for example. Um, you know, one of my favorite things I I like to tell people when this comes up is the the earliest literature we have of Christian faith is probably books like Galatians and James. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe one or two others sort of in there as well. And the first thing out of the shoot, if you read these in chronological order, you read Galatians, and it's like, this guy's really mad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and he clearly doesn't get along with this guy, Peter. Yeah. Who, you know, who's the apostle, you know, the, 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 the one to whom the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom were given. And then, you know, James, and, he, and Paul mentions James in a very negative light too in, in Galatians chapter 2. And, uh, you know, this is the brother of Jesus, James, and the ruler of, not the ruler, but sort of the head of the church in Jerusalem, Jewish. And they're clearly not getting along about a fundamental issue, like what what about Gentiles? To whom does this kingdom extend? 
And so, you know, within the New Testament itself, I just think it's it's beautiful that you have this kind of diversity and this kind of not everyone seeing eye to eye. They're working it out. Yeah. They're, they're, they're thinking through what it means to reflect Jesus here and now. And there were disagreements. Remember, the people that Paul disagreed with in books like Romans or Galatians, you know, the so-called Judaizers, which is a horrible translation, but it's it's they were they were followers of Jesus who were also Jewish. They weren't Jews coming from the outside saying stop being Christian. Mm. They were saying Christians need to follow the law of God. They need to maintain the traditions, which is a fairly perfectly reasonable, in my opinion. Right. But Paul says no. See, this is you've got the, the conflict is is sort of baked into these pages of the New Testament. And so to say, well, they've done it all for us. Okay, well, which one? <laughs> How do I unpack this diversity? I, I see it more as more a model again of the inevitability of people disagreeing. And what is the history of Christianity, if not a long list of people disagreeing about what it means for God to be here now in our midst? You've got diversity throughout the history of the church. You have diversity at this very moment worldwide across the church. You have diversity within churches. People simply don't agree on these things. So, you know, what do you do in that case? Well, the the, the biblicistic and errantist way of solving that is you find out who's the winner. One of the groups has to win. And, right. you know, I taught for a long time in a seminary that was very unashamed about saying, we actually hold the truth for everyone else. They have to get on board. And wow. that's not uncommon, though. You know, I don't know if yeah. you've ever seen this meme on, um, or it's actually more of a cartoon on Facebook of like a Sunday school class. And there's like an overhead with this long family tree of, of denominations going back from the beginning. And the teacher picks up one line towards the end. Say, that's us. And we finally got it right. You know? Oh, that's so funny. I've not seen that. But, but diversity within the old, within the new, and then within the history of the church should tell us something that either that's a mistake and God has been sleeping, or it's the way it is. And yeah. what are you going to do about it? Are you going to fight against it and correct it all and be the one? That's how you start cults, right? Or are you going <laughs> to say, maybe there's something yeah. about this diversity that's good, and it's our responsibility to do the best that we can to work things out? But that's a mouthful. I know that. You see, that's not an easy thing for people. I'm not, I'm not saying it's easy, but I mean, let, put it this way. I've come to think about this the way that I do from reading the Bible and knowing yeah, something about church history. I didn't bring it from the, at least to my mind, I didn't bring it from the outside. It's there. And you know, there's something to be said about once you see, you can't unsee. That's exactly right. And I, you know, there are moments when I find myself in conversation with people and I'm, and I remember, oh, I used to think that way and, and how easy it is to, to just stay inside your group that all thinks the same and all believes the same and not ever encounter challenges outside of it. And, you know, once you are outside of that and you begin wrestling with questions and you begin allowing yourself to, to look at things through a critical mm -hmm. lens you can't undo that. It's yeah. like once you see, you can't unsee. So help those of us who who see now <laughs> and who feel very frustrated when we are in conversations or in moments with people who 
they're not, like you said, they're just not ready for that. How, how do you manage those moments? Cause I'm sure you encounter them too. Yeah. I mean, not as much anymore. Uh, I mean, I do, I shouldn't say that cause you know, uh, teaching at a Christian college or there are diverse points of view and I think we get along fine, but you know, I can't always assume that people are where I am on certain things, but I think one thing is don't feel like it's your job to convince other people that you're right and maybe be wise about not bringing certain things up and not be defensive and say, listen, I understand what you're saying. I just see it differently. You know, that's all. And that's, that's hard to do though, if it's like in church or something. Because that's, yeah, you might have to find someplace else. That's really it. I mean, and I hate to say that. I don't say it lightly, but you may have to find another community because I think community is very, very, very important here. I mean, I think the Christian life is one of community, not isolation. And, and, you know, when you have people around you who, it's not even that they agree with you, but they honor the journey because they're on it also. And, and again, in that sense, be more Jewish. Like, I disagree with you completely. I think you're wrong, but that's, I don't care. You know, it's, that's not going to come between us and we're not going to break off fellowship Mm. and we're not going to look at you with that weird ways glance of embarrassment and shame, but we're just going to understand Mm -hmm. the fact that we both have to hold our theologies lightly and, you know, n- neither can assume that we have the full handle on truth here. And we're just trying to do the best that we can. And that alone is a huge perspective shift yes. for minds to, to make that jump. Because if you have been raised in this um, evangelical way of thinking, and not even raised in it, people who've just spent a good portion of their life in it, mm-hmm. you are conditioned, I guess is the best word I can come up with. You're conditioned to see every human through a lens of, are they with me or are they against me? And so even though people may jump out of that group and don't identify with that anymore, that mindset is hard to let go of. It's, uh, I mean, I will say that it's hard to let go of for me too. I mean, that's part of the post-traumatic stress disorder, not, not to cheapen that term, but, uh, because it's actually a really bad thing. But, you know, it's, you're right. It's, it's, you know, I have intentionally years ago left behind this active insider outsider mentality. But I I still, my, my first instinct sometimes is to judge someone on the basis of that. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I have to keep working on, but it's true. It does hang on because that's, that's that familiar thing that we felt safe there knowing who we belong to and knowing who doesn't belong to us. And, you know, I just wonder if that's really what all this God stuff is about. I I just, you know, the more I think about it, I just, we have this planet with all these people on it. And I don't know if our point is to be dividing as much as we possibly can from each other because uh, that just causes a lot of bitterness and sometimes violence and hatred and all that. And, you know, I, whatever God is up to, I just don't think it's that that's, that's my reimagining of God. You know, I don't think God is this God of this infinite cosmos. I don't think that's what this is about. Make sure you go to the right church and sing the right hymns, you know, and proclaim this exact statement of faith and sign the dotted line here. And, 
don't stray from this box. And yet, <laughs> and yet, we look at the picture of Jesus, who is the picture of God, and he's nothing like that. He seemed to be able to bridge gaps like none other, which is probably what made him so revolutionary during that time period. He just didn't seem to see lines like we do. And, I, you know, there's a lacking for that still. Yeah. There is. And that's what happens when a powerful force like that gets tribalized, you know, and, and that's, you know, when, when the government got involved, so to speak, with the you know, Roman Empire and Constantine and all that sort of stuff, when it became the rule of the day, and you start enforcing it on people and crusades come. And I know we're collapsing a lot of complicated historical things here, but you know, I, th I think you're right. I think the history of Christianity is to a certain extent a demonstration of, of making those missteps fairly early on. But what, you know, mm. the thing is, I don't know, it's, it's, anyway, okay, let's give church history a break here. If, you know, Jesus is around and, okay, love everybody, and then Paul's like, you know, Jews and Gentiles, in God's eyes, we're all exactly the same. But Paul, without question, did not think 2,000 years of this. Right. You know, Paul, Paul seemed to be pretty convinced that within a reasonable length of time, maybe in his lifetime, maybe not, but not years, not decades or centuries, that all this, that the kingdom would come in its fullness, Jesus would be on the throne and all that sort of stuff. You know, that's when you get to the second century and third century, you've got to start, what, what, what does it mean to be Christian? And well, what do you believe? You know, it can't be that simple, just, you know, love God and love neighbor. I mean, what, what, what do we have to believe about Jesus? Because you're removed from time and you want to go back to, okay, what did he do? What, what, what do we believe? What do some eyewitnesses we might, or people who knew John, let's talk to these people, you know, what do you believe about this? And then you start drawing lines about, well, this is in and this is out. Mm -hmm. And that's what the ancient church creeds were. And I have to say, I, I, I don't know if that's wrong, you know, mm. I, but I think it, the, that line drawing, we need to be holding those things maybe with some gentleness realizing that we're just doing, we haven't gotten back to the original pristine moment here. We're articulating something in our language, in our time. You know, when, when you know, the creed says, you know, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. What is that? I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's not Paul. That's not Jesus. That's not anything New Testament. That's Greco-Roman philosophy, that's Neoplatonism right. making its way into the this, this Jewish thing, the gospel. And that's not wrong, I think. I, I think this is normal what people do. They, they bring their own cultural language to, uh, you know, they, they bring that to work to explain the gospel the same way Paul did. See, Paul used, you know, Old Testament Jewish language of sacrifice when he talked about Jesus's death, for example, in Romans chapter three, mm -hmm. he, he was grasping for the language to try to explain this thing. That's really so deep and thick. You can't really exhaust it in sentences in any language. Right. Right. And so we're always doing that and that's fine. You know, and then people say, well, where do you draw the line? I say, good question. But may maybe our first task should just be to relax a little bit and not worry too much about line drawing. Cause we've been doing that for a long time. And it, it's not helping. 
Mm. Well, and even just to admit that we're doing it in the first place, I think is a huge self-awareness moment to bring to the table when we are examining the text and when we are wrestling with these ideas that people have wrestled with for centuries, bringing that honesty piece that goes, okay, I am looking at it through the lens of my culture and my time and my own beliefs that I come to the table with to begin with. And I, and I think that's a good starting point for a lot of people just to be able to, to start there, just admit that you, you come with a bit of a bias towards, towards it. Well, on, on our on our podcast, you know, Jared, we we Jared Bias, we do the co- we co-host the podcast, and you know, he, he says all all theologies have an adjective. There's no normal theology, and and for too long, you know, the the assumption even now in evangelicalism, at least mainstream evangelicalism, is that pretty much the history of white Western male intellectuals have grounded us in the true faith. Mm-hmm. And there's there's no room for other perspectives. Well, of course not. Yeah, but, um, no, we'll make room for other perspectives. As long as people realize what we're saying is not a perspective. It's actually objective. It's actually truth. It's actually truth, <laughs> right? But the thing right. is, that this is the good thing about postmodernism or feminist readings or, or liberation readings of the text that, uh, or womanist readings, all it goes down the line that say, you know, you white guys, you're not exactly objective here, you know? And yeah. I've seen that, you know, the hard way again and again in my life where I'm just seeing something that I thought was like in the text, but it's not, it's the, de- it's dependent on the questions I'm asking of the text. Mm. And, and that is a reflection of who I am and where I was born and when I was born. And but again, if we, if we come back to this idea of diversity, maybe that's not a problem that all of us humans in our humanity, try to approach God and work with this text and, 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 and ask ourselves a question, what is God like here? You know, how do we engage this text? I think that's a good thing. It's, it better be, because that's what, exactly what we're doing. But, you know, what if, what if we have to really reimagine God here and say, what if God is okay with this? What if God is more than okay with this? What if, you know, the incarnation, as mysterious as that is, maybe that's a wonderful model for us to be thinking about our own lives and how we do this theology thing in our lives, that maybe God is very interested and very pleased with humanity, so much so mm. that God enters humanity. And, and, and see, it isn't just, you know, Jesus, it isn't just God became a man. He didn't become man. He became a man in a particular point in history with customs and with ideas and with ways of thinking and with worldviews. And there's nothing safe about first century life. It could have been any time, I think, you know, but that's, that's when, that's when Jesus was around and Jesus was like a first century person. So he wasn't just a man. He, he was a man in a historical particularity in a particular moment. So maybe God respects our historical particularities Maybe God understands that we can't understand, we can't dictate when we were born or what our influences are or how we grew up and how we come to think and how we come to experience. Maybe there is no human experience that is not the an acceptable vehicle for saying something good and right about God and about the life of faith. Mm. 
at least I hope so, because if not, I think we're all screwed, quite frankly. <laughs> you know what? I mean, what else? I was waiting for you to say that line. <laughs> what, what else is there, right? I mean, you know, what what, what do we right. do? Just Do we just have winners and losers? And, you know, that, again, that has never worked well. Well, and I was thinking as you were saying that, because I know a lot of people have had to step away from the Bible because it you know, you mentioned PTSD. It it brings up this this trigger of of stress and panic mm-hmm. and fear and all the things that they are trying mm-hmm. to heal from. But there's a point in time when many of them are ready to return or want to return because it does hold such value in their life and in their journey. And so I was thinking while you were talking, this whole idea of reimagining God and reimagining what he could have been trying to say to mankind all the way through. We do come to the Bible, you know, if you pick it up and you are believing, okay, this is a book that's going to tell me how angry God is at me. Well, you're going to read it through that lens. You're going to find what you're looking for and it's going to be confirmed and Mm -hmm. the panic and the fear start all over again. But when I was listening to you talk, I had that moment of, oh, what if we looked at the text from the opposite angle of angles we never even imagined we could look mm-hmm. at. Like, what if, what if this is telling me how God is inclusive? How now do I see the text? What if this is God telling me how He has a high view of human of mankind, not low? How do I read it mm-hmm. differently now? What are your thoughts on that? For when people right. pick it back up again and try to see it with fresh eyes. Yeah, I think I think that's that's a, a very good way that you just pointed out and. I would add maybe just, you know, maybe another angle to that is to, and again, this is a hard hump to get over, but don't start with the notion that all these words are from God to you directly. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big one. Because the words, this gets complicated because, you know, hopefully you won't turn to the wrong parts of it, you know. (laughs) Right. And. You know, and and you know, what if again? This uh, this is a hard place. But if people ha- are are sort of like they've sort of detoxed a bit from their past and they want to come back to it, I want to say something like, "What if?" And I, I I talk about this in the Bible tells me so. But what if God lets His children tell the story as they understand? Yeah. And what if that can help us see why this text is actually very diverse? Mm. Because. They're writing at different times for different reasons, for different people under different circumstances. And what if we're seeing here almost a a, a people recounting their own diverse existence with God? Yeah. And they embrace that. And maybe we can too. And you can look for places. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I'm not saying it's all like bottom up stuff, but, you know, you can look for places where I think God is really speaking to me here. Mm-hmm. You know? And then evaluate it if if it brings you a sense of love and a sense of community that may be more worth holding on to at this moment in your life than the thing that makes you feel like a worm or makes you feel shamed. Right, because people shame. I don't think God shames us. I have a fundamental problem with the idea of God shaming yeah, us. Yeah. Sometimes we can feel ashamed. I felt ashamed about things, but that's a very different thing, you know. But the church can shame us, but God doesn't. So if you read something, and you say to yourself, "I don't like this at all," I say, "Go with that," because you think you're the first one to come to that conclusion. 
this is like people have been debating and arguing with this all the time, you know, and, and you're no different when you come. And actually, sometimes when you come across things that are like really violent, like in the book of um, at the end of the book of Judges, where the concubine is cut into 12 parts yes. and across, you know, the different Ugh, tribes. Yes. I know I've heard many people say, oh, that's just, I can't believe in a God like that. I can't. Well, I don't think the writer of Judges believes in a God like that either. I think you're supposed to be repulsed when you read that. Mm. Right. So but if we if we take a step away from the Bible and not think of it as, you know, forgive the caricature here, but if we don't think of it as God's love letter to me and everything here is for me, maybe it's describing things of how people felt and thought. And maybe there is a there is a theology, there is a reason, there's a lesson in these stories that made sense to them back then. Dig into that and find that and and let that be sort of your your, your compost pile for growing up flowers and daisies in your own faith, but not, it may be, you may have to dig deeper than simply the surface words. And again, that too is, oh gosh, I can go on and on. That is largely the history of Christian interpretation of the Bible. The surface meaning of the words is not where the true profundity is. It's deeper than that. It's, it's the whole history of medieval Christianity up until the Reformation, when it was like one meaning and find out what that one meaning is. No, 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 no. And that meaning is a literal meaning. It's a historical meaning. And we're still sort of bearing that burden of thinking there's one right way to look at these texts instead of trying to look at them from different perspectives, which is how Judaism and most of the history of Christianity have done it. Mm-hmm. There, there's a real power there to that the Bible comes more like a means of grace, a, a, an avenue with many roads that can sort of bring you to the same place, which is pondering what God is like and what it means to live in God's world. But this rule book mentality, that's, you know, anything that can be done to hold that at bay, I think is healthy, frankly. Yeah. Well, and I've said a thousand times on this podcast before, the moment you feel that God is angry at you or you feel hatred towards yourself or towards your neighbor, put it down. <laughs> it's yes, time I, to stop reading it. <laughs> you know, that's a great way of putting it. Hatred towards yourself. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, and I just, I was just watching something on TV not long ago where the woman was expressing how she hated herself. And that was for her a healthy religious expression, Ugh. but it's not, or oh, hating so other sad. people, you know, hating people. You know, or, or looking, you know, you look at yourself always as the hero of the parables instead of, you know, you're, you're, you're the, you're not the elder brother, (laughs) you know? (laughs) No, 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 none of us. No, no one, no one wants to identify with that. Right. And yet all of us probably are. Yeah. Probably are, you know, like we're, we're not the good Samaritan. We're the ones who step over the guy and don't want anything to do with him, you know, but. Or we're the guy on the road. (laughs) Or yes. we're the guy on the road. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, but we don't want to do that, you know, and and because we want to see ourselves in the good parts of the Bible. But, um, but yeah, you know, but you know, I think back to what you said when we hate others or hate ourselves or feel like God just is so deeply, deeply disappointed with us all the time, and Jesus mm. has to swoop in and block it somehow. You know, it's just that is I cannot imagine the God of the universe being petty. I just no. can't. And I won't. And and I won't. And I and I think I've got like enough Bible to back me up there. You know? I think you do. You have a whole podcast about it. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh my gosh, I could pick your brain for hours. Okay, for those who don't know where to find your podcast, where to find your work, tell them where to find you. Uh, PeteEnds.com or TheBibleForNormalPeople.com. Gets you to the same place. And uh, yeah, all sorts of stuff on there that you typically have on websites like um, speaking stuff. Some of my, well, all my books are on there. You can find them and just I have a podcast and I have a little Ask Pete section, which is where people want to submit questions and we'll try to answer some of those on podcasts or in blog posts or things like that. So that's just a good way if you have questions or just things you want to see discussed. That's a good thing too. So, and on Twitter, I always forget what my handle is. I think it's at Pete ends, but it just find it. it you'll, you'll, you know how to use the internet people. All right. And also I have a Facebook account someplace. I think it's, I think that one is, I don't know. It's either Peter ends or Pete ends. I use both. So I get confused myself, but you'll know it's me with all the negative comments on it. So <laughs> um, yeah, so that's, that's pretty much where to find me. Yay. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for being on this, on this show and, and sharing your time with us. You have been such a teacher to me. And, and I know I speak for many in the thought world that you have just shed such light and given us such language to, to so many questions and wrestlings that we are having quietly. It's like you've given us light and language to put to them. So thank you for the work that you do. It's well, thank you, truly I impactful. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, thank you again, Pete. All right. See ya. Hey there. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. You can find my blog and links to my Instagram and Facebook account on my website at justajesusfollower.com. I hope you join us next week for another raw, honest conversation. In the meantime, go in peace and know that you are enough.